Keep your Bibles open to the book of Micah there, one of my favorite books in the Bible. And uh, you might not know this about me, little known fact, but I actually played the alto saxophone in band class from 6th grade to ninth grade and then in wind ensemble from 10th grade to 12th grade. And um, I don't play it anymore, so don't ask me. Okay, I forgot everything. So, but what was interesting is my particular class, and I don't mean this to sound arrogant, so I'm not talking about me, but my class... We were really good, and we heard that from teachers, administrators, um, our parents, of course, but, but others would say that our class in particular was one of the best to actually come through the school. And we did have talented musicians, but I attribute that mostly to our band director, Patrick Maneri. Patrick was a phenomenal band director, and he knew how to really get the most out of us so that when we played as a group, It was this beautiful harmony and symphony of all the individual talented musicians. But here's what's interesting, okay? Sometimes, as class was starting, Patrick was still in his office finishing work. And so what do you do with a bunch of high schoolers or middle schoolers, but high schoolers at this point, who have instruments? They're going to play them, right? And so everybody just starts playing their instrument. Do you think it sounded beautiful then? (laughs) No, it sounded exactly like what you imagine right now, like a bunch of chaotic noise, because that's what it was. I mean, some people were playing scales. Some people were practicing the pieces that we were working on. Occasionally, what was interesting is some individual sections would attempt to play the same song together at the same time, and it sounded horrible. And I remember it struck me that you could have this group of incredibly talented people doing what they're good at, And yet it would sound chaotic and miserable because there was no band director. A band room without a band director is chaos. Unless he's there to establish that order and give direction, it's going to be chaotic in there, right? And I was thinking about this passage and I was thinking when you look around our world today, we're kind of like that band room without a director, aren't we? Our world is pretty chaotic, wouldn't we agree? You look around this world and it's almost nothing but chaos these days. I mean, I truly don't think that anyone in here ever thought that we would be getting to a place in our country where, we're, where we were having to debate whether or not it was appropriate to chemically castrate our children. I don't think anyone in here ever thought that we would be getting to a point in our nation where we would actually be debating whether or not it was appropriate for children to sit through a drag show. I don't think we ever thought we'd get to a point in our nation where teenagers would be uh, committing illegal activities and offenses for the sake of a viral clip and also for the sake of a viral clip doing the dumbest things we've ever seen them do, like eating Tide Pods. I mean, it's just chaos out there, is it not? You look around this world and it is just chaotic. And the question is, well, why is that? Why is it so chaotic? Well, is it because we're like that band room without a director? Have we not rejected God's authority over our lives? Have we not rejected his direction of our lives? Have we not rejected his ways? Are we not now like Israel was in the time of the book of Judges where everybody does what is right in their own eyes? And when that happens and everybody does what's right in their own eyes, you know what you end up with, church? Chaos. And that's the reason our world is so chaotic today. And so you move a step further and you say, well, okay, what do we do about it then? If it's true that our world is this chaotic, 
And we know that God is not pleased with us. I mean, you can look around our world right now and you can see the effects of God's judgment upon our nation right now. So the question is, well, what do we do about it? How do we fix this mess? How do we bring order to the chaos that is our world and our lives? What happens is you look at everything going wrong in the world, you look at everything falling apart in your life, and you want to throw your hands up and go, God, what do you want from me? And that's a good question. What does God want from us? See, that's what the people in the book of Micah were wondering. The nation of Israel, their nation was falling apart at this time. They were trying to fight off an invasion by a foreign army. Everything was going wrong. They could see that God's judgment was upon them, and they thought that they were doing everything right. They were confused, and so they threw up their hands, and they go, Well, God, what do you want from us? And you don't have to raise your hand on this, but have you gotten to that point in your life before? Or you feel like you're doing everything right, you're trying to do everything right, you're doing the best that you absolutely can, and yet everything's falling apart, everything's crumbling around you, your whole world is chaos, and you go, God, what do you want from me? Would you just tell me, and I'll do it. And here's the problem that we run into, is when people start to ask that question, they begin to look for an answer. And when people think, okay, my life is a mess, our world is a mess, it's chaotic, something needs to be done, and if God is the one who is displeased with us, then what must be done is something religious. Because we're talking about God after all, right? And so when people want to fix the chaos of their lives, they think, if only I can be more religious, then God will be pleased with me. That's exactly what Israel thought. Notice there what they said in verses 6 through 7. They say, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now you can tell that these people know the Lord's upset with them, right? And they know it because God told them he was upset with them. He said it in verses 1 through 3 of Micah. He says, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. And he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. You see, this is, and you see this a lot in the the prophets, this is what you call a courtroom scene. Anybody like courtroom dramas on TV? Yeah, I know a lot of people do. This is a courtroom scene, and God is literally calling his people before before him because he has an indictment. And he calls some witnesses. He calls the mountains as witnesses. He calls the hills as witnesses. And the Lord is telling them that they are acting in a very strange way. Because did you notice what he said? They are acting in such a way that would seem to indicate that God has done something to them and not the other way around. They are acting like God is at fault here and like he must give an account. And and see, it reminded me of uh, something that people in a relationship deal with a lot. Not me. I don't have this problem, okay? Because my wife is a straight shooter. She will give it to you straight whether you want it or not. Do not ask her a question you don't want to know the answer to. She's got too much McKinney in her for that, okay? So she's a straight shooter. I don't have this problem. But I know that for some guys, 
their wife might not be responding that much. Maybe if she does respond, it's very short, not really giving him a lot. Maybe, he, maybe she's giving him the cold shoulder and something's wrong, right? And the guy asks her and says, okay, hey, honey, what, what's wrong? And you know the answer. What does she say? Nothing. Nothing. And then guys move along their day, right? No, of course not. If you're anything like me, you're like, what do you mean nothing? What do you mean? Obviously there's something wrong. I can see how you're acting. I can see you're giving me the cold shoulder. You're barely saying anything. Clearly I've done something to upset you, so tell me what I've done. And that's exactly what the Lord is saying to Israel here. He's saying, I see how you're acting, Israel. You're turning away from me. You have no love for me anymore. You have disregarded me and my ways entirely. So please, Israel, tell me what have I done to you? And now Israel must give a response. And it's interesting how they respond because Israel knows the Lord's upset with them. And notice what their knee-jerk reaction is, folks. Their knee-jerk reaction is the same response as so many people in our world today. They say, well, if the Lord's upset with me, I must do something. I have to fix this mess. And since we're dealing with the Lord, I must do something religious. And so Israel starts looking to religion as the answer and they, they are pleading with him desperately. They say, what do you want from us, God? Just name your price. Tell us what we can do. Tell us what we must do in order to make you happy. Notice the desperation and the lengths they go to here. They say, we'll bow the knee. You want us to bow the knee? We'll do that if that's what will please you. They say, hey, you've given us the sacrificial system as a way to temporarily appease your wrath. What do you want? You want another sacrifice? You require one? We'll give you a thousand. You want ten thousands of rivers of oil? We'll give you that as well. If you want our firstborn child, God, we'll give you that. Just tell us what you want from us. Tell us what will make you happy with us. What will please you? You see, what we have here is a people who fully believe that religion is the answer to the problem of their life. They believe that religion and religious activities can solve everything. That that's what's going to fix the mess of their lives. Here's the thing, folks. The Lord never required a thousand rams as a sacrifice. But here's, here's how they're thinking. If he requires one, and one would please him, well then if I give him a thousand... He will surely be pleased with me then. They they think if I just go above and beyond, if I just do more stuff than he even required, then God will be pleased with me. And they're failing to understand something very important here, folks, that the Lord does not care about the actions if it's separated from the heart. That's what they were failing to understand here. You could give all those sacrifices, 1,000 rams, 10,000 rivers of oil. God does not care about your actions if it's separated from your heart. And that's exactly what happened here. God was saying to Israel, if you don't understand that the reason you need a sacrifice in the first place is because of your sin and the fact that you deserve to die instead of that sacrifice, well, then your sacrifice is meaningless. If you don't feel the weight of that sacrifice's death in your place because of your sin, your sacrifice is meaningless. If you don't rejoice in God's grace and even providing you with a sacrifice in the first place, your actions are meaningless. And Jesus said the same thing to the Pharisees, did he not? 
In Matthew 23, he said to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. They're going above and beyond. Jesus says, you're doing all sorts of religious stuff. That's great. You're tithing this and this and that. You've missed the point. What God was saying to Israel through Micah and what Jesus was saying to the religious leaders of Israel was essentially this. That religious activities are meaningless without a heart of sincerity. Religious activities are meaningless without a heart of sincerity. I don't know if there's another message our world needs to hear right now. I don't know if there's another message that nominal Christians need to hear right now. Because they think all they have to do is just participate in a bunch of religious activities and God will be pleased with them. That if they can just do a bunch of religious stuff, that'll make God happy. As if that's what God is focused on and cares most about. Listen to me, folks. God cares most about your heart. And so you can do all this stuff just like Israel did. But if it's separated from your heart and if your heart's not in it, you're not making God happy. You're not, pleased, you're not pleasing him at all. But that's our default as humans, is it not? We want to just look on the outside. We want to focus on the actions. Our problem is this. God looks at our heart. We might think that we're making him happy with a bunch of religious activities, but if your heart is not in it, God knows that. You might focus on your hands, but God is focused on your heart. And this is how a lot of people think today, though, isn't it? A lot of people think today, if I can just be more religious, that'll make God happy. I was telling Jordan recently about a a young lady I used to work with at Lowe's. And uh, she didn't know I was in seminary at the time when she first started working there. And so she got around me. She was cussing like a sailor, okay? Uh, I used to say cussing like a Yankee sailor, but we have some beloved Yankees with us, so I don't say that anymore. But she was cussing like a sailor. I mean, she was gossiping. She was condemning other people. She was complaining. She was just going on and on and on. And then she finally asked me about myself. I told her I was in seminary studying to become a pastor. Well... You want to see how quickly a tune can change. All of a sudden, she tells me she only listens to Chris Tomlin. She loves Christmas or Christian music, all this kind of stuff. She's just changing her tune entirely, and she starts opening up to me. And she starts telling me about what a mess her life is, how her marriage was just holding on by a thread, how her finances were an absolute wreck, how she was struggling with addiction, She had all these problems going on in her life. I mean, on and on and on, she went just describing the mess of her life. And I kid you not, at the very end of all of that, she looks to me and she goes, I know what you're thinking. I need to get back in church. And I was like, well, that's probably not a bad start. But but I told her right then and right there, I said, listen, that's a good start. But going to church is not going to fix that whole mess that you just described to me. I said, you can go to church and it might not fix anything you just described to me. That's because you don't need more church attendance. You need Jesus. And she didn't like hearing that because that's a lot harder to hear, isn't it? When it comes back to the heart. Because we want to do something, right? We're, We're Americans. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Do it yourself. And God says, you can't. You need me. And so I told her what she needed to do was repent of her sins And surrender her life fully to Christ. 
to trust in him and his sacrifice and receive his forgiveness. Only then would she find freedom from all that stuff that she described to me right there in Lowe's. But I ask you again, how often is that the mentality of our world today? How often is that the mentality of professing nominal Christians today? When things start going wrong in their life and everything is chaotic, they think, I just need to get in church. I need to go to more church services. Then everything will be good. Then God will be happy with me. He'll be pleased. And I want to say this to you as your pastor. I love you. I'd love to have you here more often. That'd be great. I'd love to have you come more on a Sunday morning. I'd love to have you get involved in gospel groups on Sunday evening. I would love for you to come and be with us on Wednesdays for prayer and Bible study. Nothing would make me happier, but I'm not God. I would want you to check your motives. Why would you be willing to come more and get more involved? Would your attendance be like Israel's sacrifices and be nothing more than just a routine? It was supposed to be this ritual that brought them closer to God, but it had become an empty routine. It was a meaningless routine at that point. Would you be coming because it was just an empty routine? You think that by coming, you're going to make God happy and earn brownie points? If so, you're going to be disappointed. (laughs) Would you be willing to get more involved because you think that it would make God happy with you just to have you here more often, just get a warm body in the seat? Or would you be willing to come and get more involved because the Bible literally says that as Christians you are supposed to be committed to and involved in the local church? Would you be willing to come and get involved to worship the one who literally sentenced his only son to death so that you could live? That's a God worth praising, is it not? Would you be willing to come and get involved so that you could grow in your relationship with Christ and deepen your walk with Christ? We want you here, but I want you to check your motives because I know that we like to look to our checklist, all the things that we like to assure ourselves of. God, I did this. I joined the church then. I was baptized then. I served on this committee. I served in this capacity. I was here this many Sundays. We love our checklist, don't we, church? But let me remind you of something on Judgment Day. Before God ever looks at anything you ever did on this earth, He's going to look at your heart to see if there is an honest genuine, sincere love for Jesus. Because that's your only hope on Judgment Day. It's not what you did. It's resting in the one who did it all for you. You see, religious activities cannot fix the mess of our world and our lives, and they will not make God happy if they are separated from our hearts. And so we go back to our question then. Well, if that's not the answer, Pastor, what is? What would make God happy? What does he want from us? And there's another interesting suggestion here. Look at verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now that phrase, to do justice, is very simple. It just means to do what is right. To do what is right in your dealings with others and to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. That phrase, to love mercy or to love kindness, or even in the Hebrew, to love loving kindness, it refers to our disposition. The disposition of every Christian should be one of mercy and grace. In other words, we should not rush to judgment. 
We should not rush to condemnation. We should not rush to assumptions. But our knee-jerk response should be to imitate our Heavenly Father in showing love and mercy and grace to others. That is the disposition of every Christian. And mercy gives more than justice demands. And then he says to walk humbly with our God. Now we're going to get to that in a second. But I want to pause real quick. Because this verse seems pretty straightforward. And though this is the answer that the Lord gives to the people through Micah, there is hardly a more misunderstood verse in the entire Bible today. Now, you might be thinking, well, pastor, how did we misunderstand that? (laughs) Because it's pretty straightforward, right? Do justice, do what's right. Love mercy, so love others, treat other people kindly. Walk humbly with God. That's pretty cut and dry, is it not? But here's how we misunderstand that verse. It's when we take that verse and we put it on a bumper sticker, a t-shirt, a coffee mug. We rip it out of its context. We isolate it. And it becomes something that it was never meant to be. Because it becomes an answer to the wrong question. People want to know, well, what does God want from me? How can I make him happy? And they think God is saying, all you have to do is this. Do what's right. Love other people. Walk humbly with me. And that's all I want. And it becomes nothing more than works-based salvation. And that's not what God is saying here. That's not at all what God is saying here. This first group of people, they thought religion was the answer to their problem of the mess of their lives and their world. This second group, they are hearing something different. They hear the Lord's response, but they fail to understand what He's actually saying. Because they think that what God is saying here is this. If you want to fix your mess, if you want me to be happy with you, be good people. As long as you're good, I'll love you. As long as you're good, I'll be happy with you. As long as you're good, you can come to heaven. And so what do people do? They try to do just that. I'm going to be the best person I can. This is the hope of our world, is it not? You ask people in our world, what does God want from us? 99% of people are going to say this verse, right? He wants us to be good people. He wants us to do what's right. He wants us to love other people. And if we can do those things, then we've given God what he wants from us. He's pleased with us. He loves us. We're all going to heaven. 99% of the world thinks if there's a heaven, they're going to it. Well, here's the problem with that. (laughs) Let me just remind you of this this morning. There is no goodness apart from God. There is no goodness apart from God. So if your hope is in, all I've got to do is be a good person, I've got bad news for you. You can't be a good person apart from God. I'm going to be the best person I can be. The best sinner is still just a sinner at best. There is no goodness apart from God. God is good. He is all that is good. He is the essence of goodness. He is the source of all goodness. It is absolutely impossible to be good apart from God and to do good apart from God. Not only that, folks, God could let you live a thousand lifetimes 
God could let you live 10,000 lifetimes and you could never do enough good things to make up for the sin that is in your life. It's impossible. But let's go a step further. Isaiah 64 says this. We all, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Now, forgive me for a second. I don't want to be too vulgar in the pulpit. But in the Hebrew, that literally refers to a menstruation cloth. That's what your good deeds are in the eyes of God. A filthy menstruation cloth. What is your goodness compared to the goodness of God? I mean, we're playing basketball on Thursday nights right now, right? You should come and see me take a couple shots. It's horrible. Even if I make a good shot, if you were to compare that shot to Michael Jordan, is that shot even good anymore? No. (laughs) It looks miserable. It looks horrible. What is your goodness when compared to the glory of God, to the goodness of God, to all that he is? It's nothing. There is no goodness. We cannot do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God while we are still in our sins. Because listen to me, every single thing we do is going to be contaminated by sin. That's why it's impossible to be good and do good apart from God. And you can think of it like this. Last week, you know that I had a horrible case of double pink eye. I'm still kind of getting over it. My eyes are still crusty in the morning, okay? But pink eye is highly, highly contagious. So I want to put a scenario before you, a hypothetical. Let's say that last week, as I had these inflamed eyes that looked like my wife was beating up on me, but she wouldn't because she's a great wife, and it, but it looked like that, okay? Let's say that I was walking in downtown easily, and I'm about to cross the road, and as I'm about to cross the road, there's a little old lady there, and she asked me if I can hold her hand and help her walk across the street. Well, I just read Micah. So I know that I'm supposed to do justice. I'm supposed to do what is right. What is the right thing to do in that scenario? i got to grab her hand, walk her across the street. But not only that, I'm called to love mercy or love kindness. And mercy gives more than justice demands. So I need to go a step further, do I not? I need to not only hold her hand walking her across the street, I now need to hold her hand and walk her all the way back to her car. And then let's just say, because this is what little old ladies do, she gives me a hug to thank me. Now, in the eyes of anybody who was looking on that situation, they would have said, well, that was such a good thing for him to do, right? I mean, anybody looking on who had just witnessed what I did, they would have said, what a nice young man. Yes, in my vision, in my scenario, I'm young in my own mind, okay? Don't tell me otherwise, I'm still young. So what a nice young man. That was such a good thing for him to do. Notice this. From the world's perspective, what I just did was good in their sight. Correct? But here's the problem. They didn't know that I was infected with pink eye. They don't know that by just grabbing her hand, I've just contaminated her. I've just spread that to her. And so even though the world thinks it was something good... That good deed has been undone because it was contaminated. It was infected, right? And in the same way, while we are dead in our sins, absolutely everything we do will be contaminated with the stain of sin. And so there is no good deed while you are still in your sins. I want you to think about it like this, folks. What God is saying here is not, if you'll do these things, I'll be pleased with you. 
He's saying, this is what I require, but you cannot do it without me. You cannot do this apart from me. You need me in order to do these things. Because I want you to think about it like this. While we are dead in our sins, how can we possibly do justice? How can we possibly do what is right while we are dead in our sins? Because if we're without Christ, do we not fall back into the Darwinian model of survival of the fittest? Everybody who's dead in their sins, they are the center of their own universe. It's all about me. What's good for me? What's right for me? What I deem to be right. What I deem to be wrong. And so how can I possibly do justice, do what is right, when all I think about is myself and my own perspective? I cannot do what is right while I'm dead in my sins. But the Bible says this, by being born again, that's the key, folks, being born again. The Bible says through faith in Christ, we gain new motives and new aims. The Bible says that when we're born again, we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We are washed literally white as snow. And that contamination, that stain of sin is removed. And so we're finally freed to be able to do good. Only then can we truly care for the widow and the orphan and the sojourner and the oppressed and seek to bring about good in this world, not so that people will praise us and think that we're great, but so that they will see God's goodness coming through us. And give glory to God in in heaven. But not only that, while we're dead in our sins, how can we possibly love mercy? How's that possible? Because I know this, when we're dead in our sins, are we not given to jealousy? Are we not given to pride? Are we not given to judgment and gossip and condemnation? While we're dead in our sins, don't we love to fuel the fires of dissension? To neglect unity? Are we not ruled by our own preferences? How on earth are we supposed to love mercy and love other people when we are dead in our sins and sin has corrupted us so much that we don't even really know what love is anymore? We need God. The Bible says through faith in Christ and by being joined to Christ, we begin to be ruled by the love of God. And there's a great effect on our lives. When you rest in the pardoning love of God, you're moved to show that same love to others, are you not? When you think about the mercy and the grace of God toward you while you were still in your sin, don't you long to show that mercy and grace to others who are still where you were? I'll go a step further. How about this one? When you think of the forgiveness that is yours in Christ, that you received when you were dead in your sins, an enemy of God, when you did not deserve forgiveness at all. Anybody in here deserve forgiveness? When you think about that forgiveness that you received when you did not deserve it, you begin to realize there is absolutely no biblical legitimate reason not to forgive other people. And you begin to be softened. As you rest in the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God, God begins to soften your heart and your spirit and you begin to be a vessel of that love for others. But not only that, folks, while we're dead in our sins, how on earth are we supposed to walk humbly with our God? People all the time, they like to call themselves Christians as they are living in habitual, unrepentant sin, right? Everybody in the South is a Christian, (laughs) Because they live in the South. 
Everybody likes to think they're a Christian, doesn't matter how they live, and so they could be living in sin and thinking that they're walking with God. How is that possible? The Bible says in Amos 3.3, can two walk together except that they're agreed? In other words, if two people are going to walk in the same direction, they have to agree on that direction, do they not? They have to have some sort of understanding about where they're going. Well, here's our problem. God will never walk in the direction of sin. But while we are dead in our sins, our whole lives are guided by sin. They're ruled by sin. They're directed by sin. While we are dead in our sins, we only go in the direction of sin. So how on earth can we walk with God while dead in our sins? You cannot. It is impossible. And so God is not saying here, if you'll just be more religious, I'll be happy. And he's not saying here, if you'll just be good people, then I'll be happy. That will not fix us. And so what does God want from us? God wants us to be united to him through faith in Christ. It's that simple. God wants us to be united to him through faith in Christ. Don't put the cart before the horse, church. Religious activities are not a means to earn God's love. Did you hear me? Religious activities are not a means to earn God's love. They are a means of expressing our love and thanks to God for what he has already done for us in Christ. Don't get it mixed. God does want us to be good people who do good and love others and walk with him, but he wants us to understand that all of those things are absolutely impossible apart from Christ. This is all, it all comes back to Christ every time. Every book of the Bible, every passage of the Bible, every verse of the Bible, it's all about Jesus every time. And so God is saying, if you do not have Jesus, none of this other stuff matters. If you do not have Jesus, it does not matter how religious you are. If you do not have Jesus, it does not matter how good you think you are. You must be united to God through faith in Christ. That is our only hope. You cannot separate these things from Christ or you end up with legalism. Just be more religious to earn your salvation or you end up with moralism. Be the best person you can be and then God will be happy with you. And I want to tell you this morning, folks, legalism and moralism are both powerless to save you from your sins. Only the grace of God in Christ can do that. You don't need legalism. You don't need moralism. You need the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, when we push Christ aside and we reject his authority and his direction, here's what's going to happen. Our world, our church, and your individual lives will be as chaotic as a band room without a director. We need Jesus in our lives. And so if you see that chaos today, I don't know where it's at. I don't know if it's in your own sphere of influence. I don't know if it's in your own personal life. Do not look to religious activities as the answer. They can't help you. Do not look to moralism as the answer. They cannot help you. Nothing will free you from legalism more than resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. What more can you possibly do to please Christ when Jesus has already done everything needed to do to please the Father? Jesus died on the cross. He said, it is finished. It's already been done. And so you don't need to do more religious activities to earn that love of God. You need to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ because it is truly finished. Amen.
Nothing will free you from moralism and trying to be the best version of yourself like resting in the perfection of Christ. Because he is perfect, is he not, church? And the great news is for you that that perfection is attributed to you through faith in Christ. So God is not saying do more, try harder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, be the best version of yourself you can be. God says even that will fall short, but I will consider you perfect through faith in Christ and his perfection that he earned through his obedience and his righteous life. I will give it to you. It will be yours in Christ. So you don't have to do more and try harder. Rest in what has been done for you by Jesus. And then allow his love and his mercy to soften your spirit and make you a vessel of that love and mercy for others. What does God want from us? He wants us to surrender our lives and our hearts to him and be united to him through faith in Christ. Amen? Let's pray.